Church, it's so good to be with you today. Count it once again such a blessing and an honor and grace of God to be here and to be able to share with you God's word. We're continuing in the gospel of Matthew today. And in today's text, we're going to see a noticeable shift and a change in the way that we're going to see and encounter Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24 today. And commentators say that you can open your Bible, take a pen, and draw a big fat line in between verses 19 and 20 of Matthew chapter 11 because something happens between those two verses. We're going to see something dramatic happening. We're going to see a side of Jesus that perhaps we're not used to. A side of Jesus that we often try to ignore because honestly it makes us uncomfortable. A side of Jesus that we don't mention to our unbelieving friends because we feel like it'll just turn them off towards Jesus. Church, the constant danger that we face as believers is the danger of creating a Jesus of our own making. Uh, Imagining a Jesus as we want him to be. Thinking of Jesus as we prefer him to be, rather than worshiping Jesus as he has revealed himself to be in his word. So far, what we've seen in the ministry of Jesus is a Jesus who was overwhelmingly gracious and tender, a Jesus who welcomes children, a Jesus who goes over to Zacchaeus's house, the rich man that everyone else hated, a Jesus who stops and pays attention to the poor, heals the lame, the blind that's crying out for help, a Jesus who doesn't ignore, who doesn't treat with disgust, but who engages in conversation with the sexually marginalized, like the woman at the well. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, a Jesus who has extreme patience and kindness towards those of us who doubt him. In fact, he's so loving, he's so gentle, he's so tender with sinners like us that the accusation against Jesus in Matthew 11 verse 19 is that he's the friend, that he's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so, so far, what we've overwhelmingly seen is a tender and kind Jesus who makes very precious and very great promises to us. Now let's read, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You guys see the shift and the change? Here, Jesus is not offering precious and very great promises. He's making a threat. He's not promising tender grace. He's promising perilous wrath for those that refuse to turn to him in repentance. He's still the God of promises, 
But these aren't the kind of promises that we're used to. But nevertheless, this too is Jesus. We love the tender and gracious Jesus, the Jesus who always has his arms open wide for you, the Jesus that never gives up on you and is patiently waiting for your return no matter how far you've run away from him. And to be sure, that is Jesus. To be sure, that is Jesus. He is all of those things, but what Matthew is showing us today is that he's not just those things. He's not only kind and gracious and full of tender mercies. He's also holy and just and filled with fury and wrath. He's both. And we don't get to pick and choose what we like about him and what we don't. Because if we have a made-up Jesus, kind of a photoshopped Jesus, a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus that we've cropped here and there and airbrushed here and there. The reality is we may really like that Jesus, but that Jesus doesn't exist. And a Jesus that doesn't exist can't save you. Only the real Jesus can save you. And so before you get turned off to parts of the Bible like this, know that oftentimes the most loving thing to do is to warn. And sometimes the most positive thing that you can do is to be negative. If your kid is standing at the edge of the cliff and you say, take one more step, you're going to die, right? And what if your kid turned around and says to you, you're being so negative right now. I can't listen to you when you're being like this. I wish you would just keep that stuff to yourself, right? It'd be ludicrous, right? Love, genuine love, warns, and it warns seriously. And so throughout the Bible, God does this. And Matthew 11 is a very good example. Because we're his, because he loves us, because he wants us to experience the flourishing that comes from trusting him, And obeying him, not our own ways, he offers us not only the grace of his tender and precious promises, but also the grace of his threatening and perilous promises. Both are God's grace to us. That's the main point of this message. And so we're going to be talking about Jesus' threatening grace to us today. And ask three questions. First, when does Jesus threaten? When does he threaten? Second, What is the threat? And third, how is it grace? When does Jesus threaten? First question. Answer. Jesus threatens when his mighty works are not met with repentance. He threatens when his mighty works are not met with repentance. Let's read again, verse 20 and 21. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus is denouncing cities. He's threatening here. He's saying, woe to you. What we have to understand about this, woe to you, is that it's not an immediate, right now, call for vengeance and peril. A woe to you has the future in mind, right? Other translators render it, alas, how terrible it will be. How terrible it will be for you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. It's very reminiscent of Jonah's call against Nineveh when Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days. Remember that? There's a promise of great threat given 
and we're jumping a little ahead here, but the reason why that's grace is because when God threatened the Ninevites, and when Jesus threatened Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, when Jesus threatens us, he's giving us time. Time to what? Time to repent. When a parent looks at a disobedient child and says, you're about to be grounded, right? You're going to get a spanking, right? When you look at a disobedient teenager and you say, you're going to get your phone taken away. When you choose to go nuclear like that, what are you saying? You're saying, there's something about what you're doing. There's something about what you're saying. There's something about the way that you're acting. There's something about your heart that is not right. That is not good. I'm not happy about it. And it needs to change And it needs to change right now. Or else. Or else what? Or else the future-oriented threat is going to become a present-oriented reality. And there's a biblical term for that change that you desire as a parent that's called repentance. It's called repentance. And so when does Jesus threaten? He threatens when he doesn't see repentance. He threatens when he doesn't see the change that ought to be occurring in our lives in light of the work, even though he's working in our lives. Look at verse 20 again. When he began to denounce, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus was expecting repentance from Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Why? Because these were the cities where he had done most of his mighty works, it says. In other words, what Jesus is saying and what Matthew is showing us is that the primary goal, the primary goal of all the mighty works of Jesus wasn't just physical healing that had temporary ramifications, but the main goal, the main goal was to bring about repentance that would have forever ramifications. What, what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? Jesus is saying, all my mighty works isn't having its full effect in you. The seeing was the goal, but not the main goal. The walking and the hearing and all the physical healing, it was the goal, but it wasn't the end goal. They were all supposed to act as a pointer to a greater reality that would lead to your repentance, right? I was thinking, I'm not just coming, I'm not just done all these things so that you could have temporary, better physical lives for yourself. I've come to change your eternity, right? There's a reality that these mighty works are testifying. What reality is that? That Jesus was God in the flesh, and so Jesus is saying, woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, because most of my mighty works I've done for you was in your midst, which all testified to the presence of the divine, which all testified that God himself had come to be with you, and yet you did not repent. All throughout the Bible, when you see people come into the presence of God, what do you see them doing? See them falling face down flat, Right? Abraham fell down flat. Moses fell down flat. Joshua fell down flat. There's something about seeing him and experiencing him that makes you say, I need to fall down right now. There's just something about being in the presence of a holy God that makes you say, woe is me. Woe is me. 
which is at the heart of repentance. Let me show you an example in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What we're seeing here is that when we come into the presence of the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and if there is no woe is me about you, there's going to be a pronouncement of woe unto you. When we see and experience the mighty works of Jesus, church, have you seen his works? Have you heard of him? Has he spoken to you? Has he done some things in your life? If you see and experience these things, and if there is no woe is me about you, there's going to be a woe is you. I don't even know if that's grammatically correct, but English is my second language, okay? <laughs> if there is no woe is me, there's going to be a woe is you. There's just something about who Jesus is and what Jesus does that demands that we fall down. Change the entire trajectory of our ways. Something about seeing him and experiencing him that makes us say, I can't go on with life as usual. I need a change. Look at him. Look how beautiful he is. Look how worthy he is. How can I just keep on living the way that I'm living? I need a change. Woe is me. Right? And when there's no woe is me, when there's no repentance, that's when Jesus threatens. So when does Jesus threaten? When we ought to repent. Because of what we have seen, because of what we have heard, because of what we have experienced, and yet we don't. Next question. What is the threat? What's the threat that Jesus is making? Let's read verses 22 through 24. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And when Jesus says to Capernaum, which was essentially Jesus' hometown, it was the base of his operations, he says to them in verses 23 and 24, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The threat is that there's going to be degrees of punishment on, the, on Judgment Day. In a way, Dante's Inferno was right. There's going to be degrees and levels of punishment in hell. But where Dante was wrong is that the degrees of punishment is not going to be determined by the heinousness, heinousness of the act of sin. You're a liar, and so you get this level of hell. You're a murderer, so you get that level of hell. 
But the degree of wrath in hell is going to be determined by how much of himself Jesus offered to you. It's going to be determined by how much Jesus spoke and worked in your midst and yet you did not repent and give him the whole of your life. Jesus is saying, to whom much is given, much is required. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had more of Jesus' proximity. They had more of his teaching, more of his miracles. And so Jesus is saying, the more I'm going to hold you responsible. And that ought to wake us up today. Because what Jesus is saying is as far as God is concerned, the people in the hot seat are not the people out there living the way that they want, but the people that are in the hot seat are those of us in here listening to Jesus about this text. And so what Jesus is saying is that it's one thing for someone who has experienced very little of Jesus not to repent. The judgment's going to be terrible for them, but it's going to be more terrible. It's going to be more terrible for those of us who have been in God's church and have tasted of God's word, experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's another thing for that person to say after all those blessings and all those experiences, I think I like my life just the way it is. I think I'm just going to keep living it my way. So if you're here today and for some reason you just like being around church, You like being around God's people, hearing God's word even, but in your heart you've settled it. You have absolutely no intention of giving yourself fully to Jesus. You have no intention of giving him your everything. What the Bible is saying is that it will be better for you. It will be better for you that when you leave today, that you never come back. That your eternal judgment will be more bearable for you, it says. You will be held accountable for every time, for every instant that Jesus shows himself to you and speaks into your life. That's the warning. That's the perilous threat that Jesus is making here. But let's dig a little deeper. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, you can think of them like small family-friendly towns, maybe like Granbury, Texas, or Fredericksburg, or New Braunfels, and If Jesus were to show up on the scene today and he said, woe to you, Austin, Texas. On judgment day, it's going to be more tolerable for Granberry than for you. We'd be like, that's hard, but yeah, I see that, right? (laughs) But what if he showed up to say, woe to you, Granberry. Woe to you, Fredericksburg. On judgment day, it's going to be more tolerable for Austin than for you. We'd be like, what's happening in Granbury? What kind of freaky stuff are they into in Fredericksburg, right? It would be shocking, right? But that's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is saying. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were known to be these small towns that were relatively more religious. Bible Belt towns, relatively more moral, relatively more good. But Jesus says that it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre, for Sidon, and Sodom. These, these were cities that the Israelites knew very well because they had been vigorously denounced by the prophets for their wickedness. Tyre and Sidon used to capture Jews and sell them off into slavery. 
In the minds of the Galilean Jew, the two of the most wretched cities were Tyre and Sidon. And the sinfulness of Sodom is notorious even today, right? And so why would Jesus say this? Why would God's judgment be worse for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum than for Tyre, Sidon, and even Sodom? We might think these towns must have been doing some crazy things. Adultery, murder, idol worship. That's why Jesus is being so harsh with them. But if you go and actually study the way that these towns responded to Jesus when he was doing, going around doing all these mighty works, is that these people were coming out to him in droves. They were welcoming Jesus. There were huge crowds. They didn't reject Jesus. They welcomed Jesus. They applauded Jesus. They cheered Jesus. In other words, what? Pastor Tim Keller says they liked Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, that's the worst thing you can do. Just like him. Church, listen. Very carefully because Jesus is particularly aiming his threats at religious people. Churchgoer type of people. What Jesus is saying is that if you've really met me, if you've really come into my presence, there's something about just liking me that's not enough. There's something even about acclaiming him and singing to him like we do. There's something about gathering together like this, like we do, that's not enough. If it doesn't lead to repentance. If it doesn't lead to a woe is me, I need to change in light of him. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum did all the gathering. They did all the cheering. They did all the welcoming. They said, oh, look at his miracles. How wonderful. And then they went back to life as usual. They went back to their jobs. They went back to driving their kids to soccer practice. They went back to serving at their churches even. And then they forgot about this king who was commanding repentance. They forgot about this king who was demanding the whole of their lives. In other words, Pastor John Piper says about their response that they responded to Jesus with the sin worse than Sodom's, which was what? Which was a complete outright rejection of him, right? They responded with the sin that's worse, which is what? Polite impenitence. They politely dismissed him. They didn't jeer at him. They didn't shake their fists at him. They simply said, no, thank you, Jesus. And perhaps this is our attitude. Maybe we have a little bit of the spirit of Chorazin in us when we clearly feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit speaking to us about a certain area in our lives. And then we politely say, Jesus, I think I've given you enough. We politely say, I really do feel like I've obeyed you in enough areas of my life. So this little part, I'm going to keep to myself. Jesus, surely you'll understand. So when does Jesus threaten? He threatens when he doesn't see the repentance he ought to see. And what is the threat that he's making? He's threatening that to the extent that we've seen him, to the extent that we've heard him, to the extent that we've experienced him in this life, we will be held eternally responsible. Now, how is all of this grace? All these threats and promises of woe and judgment day doesn't sound like grace, doesn't feel like grace, just makes me feel scared and uncomfortable. Why are Jesus' threats nevertheless his grace to us? It's grace because as we talked about earlier, woe to you, woe to you is future oriented. 
The threat is talking about the future. It will happen. And it will absolutely happen if, if we don't repent. Yet 40 days, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And if the people of Nineveh repented at the message of Jonah, how much more hope do we have that we would and others would and people from every tongue, tribe and nation would repent at the message of the cross of Jesus? And it's the cross of Jesus and only the cross of Jesus that makes it possible for his threats to be grace. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus swallowed up the woe. At the cross, Jesus swallowed up the eternal woe that you and I deserved and gave us the eternal blessing that he deserved. The blessing of having God as our loving heavenly father. All the miracles, all the healings, make no mistake, those were some great and mighty works. But at the cross of Jesus, we see and we experience the greatest, the mightiest work that Jesus has ever done. And that is the work of the love of God. At the cross, we see the sacrificial and costly love of God on display. Because think about it, because in a sense, all those healings, all those miracles, it cost Jesus nothing. He simply spoke it. He simply willed it, and it was done. But the work of the cross would cost him everything. Do you see why it's greater? Church, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, We're witnesses to Jesus' healings and miracles. But you and I are witnesses of the cross of Jesus. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were witnesses to Jesus' mighty works. But you and I, because of this book, because of the testimony of God's church from millennia upon millennia, because of the work of the Holy Spirit that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, church, we are witnesses of the greatest, the mightiest work that Jesus Jesus has ever done. And so with it comes God's greatest promises of blessing if you repent and believe. And with it comes God's greatest promises of woe and peril if you don't. All the miracles, all the healings, these were but the sunbeam. Just glimpses and glimmers of what God was doing, but the cross of Christ is the sun. And we, church, stand in direct light of that sun. For God so loved the world, it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Do you believe that at the cross, Jesus swallowed up that eternal woe that you and I deserved and gave us the eternal blessing that he deserved? If you do, everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of the woe that you will never have to face. Because Jesus was forsaken for you, you will never be forsaken. All of heaven is yours. All righteousness is yours. All of God is yours as Father. But sadly, there's another side, isn't there? If you don't believe. If you don't believe the greatest and mightiest work that Christ has ever done. Let me speak to those of you that are listening. and Maybe you're here and you've never really believed. You can't 
honestly say that you've repented and thrusted the whole of your life on Jesus. As lovingly as I can, let me say this. If you don't believe, everything that happened to Jesus on the cross is a picture of the woe that will happen to you on Judgment Day. And you may be thinking, if God really does exist, if he's loving as you say, how could he send people to hell and try to find some comfort in that? Well, let me ask you another question. How could a just God, how could a righteous God, how could a holy God forgive people that have rejected such a wonderful cross? How could God forgive people who have rejected such a great and mighty work of God? How could a father who loves his son Jesus so much, and after seeing all that his son did, forgive those who rejected him? How could he do it? Sin sin is real. God's wrath is real. Hell is real. And if God did not spare his own son when he bore our sin, if God poured out his wrath, think about that. If God was willing to pour out his wrath on his son on the cross, he most certainly will pour out his wrath on you if you reject this great and mighty work of Jesus on the cross. So I plead with you, believe. If you're here, if you've never trusted him, Believe. Look at what he's done for you. He's given you the whole of himself on the cross. Repent. Turn from your ways. Give him the whole of your life. Sin is real. Judgment day is real. Hell is real. But so is the cross. So is forgiveness. So is grace. So is eternal life. For all those who trust in this Jesus, this beautiful Jesus. Well, what about the believers in the room? What about those of us who have been trust, who have trusted in Jesus and repented and believed in the work of the cross? Is there an application for us when we encounter scripture like this? Of course, it's an opportunity for us to wonder at the greatness of our salvation. It's an opportunity for us to worship him, right? for the great accomplishment of the cross. But let me close a bit more soberly because I think that's the whole point of this text. Whole point of this text, I think Jesus is making us sober up, wake up, especially those of us who believe that we're genuinely believers, to examine ourselves, to see whether we've truly repented and believed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Are you here? You may be thinking, I'm good. I'm a believer. I'm standing. Paul says, take heed lest you fall. And as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You believe that God's called you. You believe that you're one of the elect. Confirm it. How? Look at your life. Are you bearing the fruit of repentance over and over and over again? Can you say, like Martin Luther did, 
that your whole life is a life of repentance. Your whole life is a constant turning away from yourself and what you desire and what the world promises and towards Jesus. That's the fruit of repentance. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, demonstrated on the cross. The greatest work, the mightiest work, work unimaginable by us, Lord, your son accomplished. Not with light energy, not with little pain, but with the greatest pain imaginable, with the greatest energy imaginable, as he sweat drops of blood, even contemplating it, Lord. And yet he stood up and went to the cross, was not shaken because of his great love for us, because of his great love for you. And Father, woe to us if we reject that great work. Woe to us if we turn away and live life as usual. Father, will you bear the fruit of repentance in the lives of your people? Let our lives be marked with a constant turning away from ourselves, from the promises of this world that promises all kinds of joys, all kinds of happiness, but it will, it will let us down especially on that great judgment day. Father, call us in once again. Father, over and over and over again, will you point us by the work of your Holy Spirit to this work of the cross so that we would see him and his beauty and his majesty and realize that the eternal woe that we face, he swallowed up. And he's giving us the eternal blessing of being able to approach you and call you Father, Abba, Daddy. So that we would even look forward to Judgment Day. That we would not fear that great day, but we would long for that great day. When you look at us and you say, Welcome, well done my good and faithful servant, my sons, my daughters, enter into the joy of your master. Thank you for the cross. Let us boast in the cross alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.